Hear now God's word as we find it, uh, Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you, but I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing as we study it together today. Uh, Bruce Thielman was, uh, was the pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania for many years. Uh, now uh, has been dead for quite some time, but in one of his sermons, he, he told about a collection of letters that had been written by children to Santa Claus. And he said that his favorite went like this. Dear Santa, there are three little boys who live at our house. There's Jeffrey. He's two. There's David. He's four. And there's Norman. He's seven. Jeffrey is good some of the time. And David is good some of the time. But Norman is good all of the time. I am Norman. Uh, I, I think uh, if the Lord has ordained truth uh, from the mouth of babes, uh, seven-year-old Norman might be a prophet. Uh, rare is, uh, is the adult who will so willingly, so unabashedly uh, admit their own self-satisfaction. At least we don't do that publicly. Uh, privately, though, we know. We know the temptation to look at people around us and to imagine that even if we're not perfect, we're probably at least a little bit better than they are. Uh, and uh, children do it at Christmas time, but students do it uh, when grades are, are handed out and employees do it every year for their annual evaluations and pastors do it when they're preparing sermons and parents do it when they're raising children. Uh, and it is the, the unending pandemic of our personal overconfidence. Typically, it's coupled together with a, a sort of downward glance, a prideful downward glance at all the people who don't live up to our standards. And when it happens among children and it happens at Christmas, it seems harmless. But Jesus is warning us in these verses about the dangers of, of being overconfident in our own spiritual condition. He's warning us of the danger that as long as we find someone else who, who makes us feel morally good by contrast, well, we will never know the humility that should make us cry out to God for his mercy. And so verse 9 tells us that Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and they treated others with contempt. Now, interestingly, uh, you notice Jesus makes the point of this parable by making a spiritual comparison. <laughs> he compares uh, two men, uh, a Pharisee and a tax collector. He, he doesn't compare uh, what they look like. He doesn't compare the things that they do. He compares the way that they approach the Lord in prayer. 
And so from, from the prayer of the Pharisee, we learn a negative lesson, I think. We learn the lesson from the prayer of the Pharisee that self-righteous people are content to compare themselves to everyone else around them. That's our, our first point today, that self-righteous people are content to compare themselves to everyone else around them. By now, in Luke's gospel, the, the cast of characters is familiar. We've seen uh, the Pharisees and the tax collector. Often we've seen Pharisees and tax collectors uh, together, and we know by, by Luke's writing and by this gospel that they represent opposite ends of a, of a spectrum in Judaism. The Pharisees, of course, were scrupulous. They, they were upright. They were held uh, in high esteem by everybody who, who called themselves a Jew. And the Pharisees, well, they barely deserved to be called Jews themselves. They were the rogues and, uh, and the scoundrels. They were the, the Roman conspirators that everyone loved to hate. These men standing in the temple, they, they practically represented uh, separate spiritual species. When they stood there in the temple, the Pharisee was in his natural element. The, the tax collector was more like an alien from an alternate universe. And yet by God's invitation, both Pharisee and tax collector, both of them together could enter the temple. They could encounter the drama of forgiveness. It happened every day in the temple at the hours of, of 9 a.m. and 3 p.m., the hours of the daily sacrifice. It happened twice a day, every day, when an animal was slaughtered uh, and, and given up to be burnt, and, and the smoke from the sacrifice would mingle together with the smoke uh, of the holy incense, and the people uh, would, would pray their prayers aloud, and all of it together would, would ascend to the Lord as a pleasing aroma. And then when the sacrifice, when the offerings were over, God's priest would come and he would raise his hand and he would pronounce a benediction, God's blessing on the people. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace, they would say. And that's what it was about. It was, it was about God's peace. It, it was about the peace of the Lord, his, his reconciliation, his mercy for all those who are willing to draw near with, with humble and contrite hearts. But standing right there in the presence of God's mercy, the Pharisee completely missed it. Verse 11 says the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. The Greek of, of that verse is, is just ambiguous enough that it could be translated differently. And so you see the, the footnote there. It could be translated as uh, the text in the ESV has it, that he stood by himself as, and prayed, or it could be that he stood and he prayed to himself. Maybe even that he stood and he prayed about himself. However you take it, I think it's probably what we have in the text, probably the first option, but however you take it, you can see immediately that in his prayer, this Pharisee is infatuated with his own importance. He will not stand with the other worshipers. He imagines himself on a different plane from other men. He is a spiritual narcissus. He stands and, and he gazes into the ocean of God's glory, and all he beholds is his own reflection. Actually, that's, that's easy to do, so long as you have become an expert in recognizing the sins that exist in everybody but yourself. And so he rattles off uh, the litany of, of what perhaps in his mind was 
the list of the big three sins of his day. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, uh, unjust, adulterers. And, you know, legalists of, of every age have their own list of the big three. You can think maybe if this Pharisee was a 19th century Scottish Presbyterian, maybe it would be a different list. God, I, I, I thank you that I'm not a gambler. I thank you that I'm not uh, a dram drinker. I thank you that I'm not a man who abuses the Lord's Day. Maybe in, in Geneva with Calvin, they would say, thank you that we're not idlers. Thank you that we're not crooks. Thank you that we're not those people who, who pray to those statues and those icons. We know what it would be in our day. Lord, we thank you that, that we're not drug pushers. We're not abortionists. We are not those flagrant homosexuals out there. And the problem with each of those lists really has nothing to do with whether they're true or not. Of course they're true. Of, of course God is against these things. He's against abortion and, and he's against uh, alcoholism and, and he's, he's against idleness and he's against homosexuality. Uh, the problem with those lists isn't that they're false. The problem with those lists is that they're low-hanging fruit. You know, if we're being charitable to this, to this Pharisee, we should probably take him at his word. He says he, he doesn't do these things, and he probably doesn't, most likely. He most likely is not cheating other people out of their money or, or making false accusations for his own gain. He's not traipsing around town chasing one more one-night stand. In most respects, he is probably an, an upstanding, outwardly moral, exemplary citizen. But the problem is that when you begin to define sin only by those big, glaring iniquities that exist in other people, it's easy to give yourself a pass. It's easy to imagine that you actually are better than you are. And you can do that generally. You can do it in categories like, uh, like the Pharisee did in the first portion of his prayer, or you can do it personally like he did right after. I thank you, uh, Lord, that I'm not like other men or even like this tax collector. You, you can almost hear the contempt. This tax collector, there he is. He looks around this Pharisee to see if there's anybody in the crowd who fits his ideal of visual representation of what a dirty sinner looks like, and lo and behold, he's able to find somebody. Even there, by the altar, even there at the hour of prayer, this self-satisfied man saw nothing but the sins that exist in other people. And that's always convenient. It was convenient for him because there was somebody in this tax collector whose sin was so notorious, whose, whose iniquity was so heinous, that it actually it kind of put a shine on all the good things that the Pharisee was doing. You notice the way that he ends his prayer there uh, by listing his achievements. I fast twice a week. I give a tithe of all that I get. What we need to know uh, from that, the, the point of that is that in each instant, the Pharisee is going above and beyond the requirements of God's law. The law of God required a fast only one day a year on the Day of Atonement. And Deuteronomy demanded a tithe of all a person's produce, but it demanded the, the tithe only from the person who produced it. Well, the Pharisees, they, they fasted about a hundred times more than they needed to. And they paid tithe even on the things that they bought in the marketplace, even the things that they didn't produce, just in case the person who did produce it, well, in case they weren't as observant as the Pharisees were. They called them uh, the Am Haaretz, the people of the land. 
And there are Pharisaical texts uh, instructing other Pharisees that when you buy things in the market, you need to take it home uh, and you need to pay a tithe on it so that you won't unwittingly join the Am Haaretz, those other people. Well, if all of his, if all of his fasting, if all of his tithes had been, had been done secretly almost, if it had been done with, with a thankful heart, with humility, it could have been a blessing. But instead, it was, it was just another notch in his spiritual belt. Verse 12 actually is the conclusion uh, of the thought that is begun in verse 11. Verse 11, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Well, how do you know that you're not like other men? Well, uh, easy. I, I don't do the things that they do, and instead I do all these good things, right? I give all these works of righteousness to the Lord. I go above and beyond what God even requires of his people. This, this man came into prayer like a fighter pilot. And you've seen those, uh, those jets, perhaps, may, maybe in another uh, time of war, and, and they're emblazoned, they're painted with all the flags of all the other enemies that they have shot down just to prove how much of an ace they are. And this man came into prayer like that. I'm better than him, and I'm better than her, and I'm better than them, and I'm, I'm not like these other people. He came into prayer puffed up. He came prideful. He came trusting in himself that he was righteous, and in the process, he treated others with contempt. That's always what self-satisfied people do. They lower the bar of righteousness until they imagine that it's low enough they can step over by their own merits, by their own efforts. And the way you do that is, is by focusing on the sin of people around you sins that make your own behavior look good by comparison. And so we learn uh, this lesson from the Pharisee that self-satisfied people are content to compare themselves to everyone else around them. But from the tax collector, we learn a better way. We learn that when you see your sin as God does, it makes you cry for mercy. Here's our second point, looking at the prayer of the tax collector, that when you see your sin as God does, it makes you cry for mercy. Now, before uh, the tax collector even opens his mouth, before he says anything, we can already see in verse 13 just how different he is from the prideful man who came before him. Verse 13, just, just his posture. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast. It's a single brushstroke, but with this one brushstroke, Jesus is able to paint a picture of a man who is burdened by something that's too heavy for him. It seems strange to us because the way that he prays, his posture in prayer, it almost makes sense to us. Now, for, for whatever reason, when we think of prayer, we think of something uh, downward, maybe. We think of something inward, something, something quiet. You know, you, your head is bowed, your, your eyes are closed, your, your hands are clasped. Maybe you imagine that, that picture when you think of prayer, that painting. Uh, it's called Grace by Eric Engstrom, and you would, you would know it if you saw it. It's that picture of the old man, and he's got the white beard, and he's, and he's in his work shirt, and he's leaning over his table, and he's praying silently over his bread and his Bible, and his, his head is bowed, and his, his fingers are crossed, and his head is in his hands, and, and it's become like the, uh, the enigmatic picture of, uh, of contemplative prayer, just sort of a quiet moment, you and God, just, just sort of downward and quiet, but that's not the way prayer was done in Jesus' day. 
In Jesus' day, prayer was something outward. It was it was something upward, and people prayed standing up more often than not. They would pray with their hands outstretched. They would pray with their eyes raised up. In fact, it's the Pharisee who who by comparison seems to meet the posture you would expect of prayer. And, and by comparison, when Jesus says the Pharisee stood by himself and the tax collector stood far off, we should probably imagine the Pharisee is up front somewhere. He's as close to the altar, he's as close to the, uh, to the action as he could get. What's he doing there? Well, he's, he's there standing by himself probably for one of two reasons. Either uh, he's trying not to be contaminated by the, the sinfulness of the crowd that's all around him, so he gives himself some personal space, or he's trying to get the best spot so that everybody else can see him, can see his posture, and they can learn how this prayer thing is supposed to go. But nobody wants to take notes from the tax collector. He prays like somebody uh, who had never been in church before, and when he walks in for the first time, he'd even forgotten to pick up a bulletin. He doesn't know the first thing about praying in the temple. He doesn't know how to stand or, or where to look. He doesn't know how to behave himself in a crowd. He's all the way at the back as though if he got too close to the altar, the ceiling was going to collapse in the temple. He was staring at the floor as though his shoes were safer than the sacrifice. Worst of all, he's, he's beating his chest like some Middle Eastern woman at the funeral of her firstborn son. And there is no man in polite society at the time, there's no man with even a shred of self-respect that would make a spectacle like that of himself. But it's the posture. And in that posture, it, it's, it's the way that he joins the ranks of all the other godly men throughout Scripture who also fall to pieces in the presence of God's holiness. Think of Isaiah in the temple, crying, Woe is me, for, for I am undone. Literally, I, I'm disintegrated. I, I've fallen to pieces. I'm broken. Think of Peter on his face in the boat. Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Think of John on the Isle of Patmos in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Well, so far the tax collector is still standing, but I think just barely. And here he is, he's come into the same temple as this self-righteous Pharisee. He's standing among the same crowd, he sees the same sacrifice, he smells the same incense, but there's a difference here. Because while the Pharisee found comfort. He, he found confidence in seeing all these sinners whose lives were worse than his. The tax collector's prayer has exactly two reference points. Point one, God is holy. Point two, I am not. And that was, that was the secret of the tax collector's prayer. It wasn't in his urgency. It wasn't in his, his public display. It wasn't in the sense that he, he looked like a mess. His prayer had teeth, and it had tears because he saw his sin through God's eyes. He didn't see his sin in comparison with anybody else around him. And so he prayed, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Now, if we take the Pharisee at his word, we should take the tax collector at his as well. We shouldn't try to minimize or explain away when he says that he's a sinner. We shouldn't imagine that he's being too sensitive. One older commentator said, This publican was a rotter, and he knew it. 
The Greek actually is, is stronger, and it uses the definite article there. And so when he prays, actually he says, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. As if he's the only one who ever existed. It is as if there is no other human benchmark. There, there's no comparison to the guilt that polluted his soul. He didn't look around at other people and say, well, you know, I might be a lowlife, but at least I'm not a phony like that guy up there at the front. He didn't look around for, for misguided souls and console himself by saying, well, but for the grace of God, there go I. He didn't imagine, as so many people do, that somehow God plots human sin on something like a number line. And it stretches in both directions. And depending on the neighbors that you have to the left and to the right, well, actually, you might come out okay in the end. He realized in the cold white light of Scripture truth that you, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He realized that whoever keeps the entire law yet fails in one point, he has become guilty of breaking it all. He realized that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So there's no use comparing your millimeter of righteousness to somebody else's millimeter of righteousness and dreaming about which one of you is closer to the stratosphere. He realized that when we compare our righteousness to the only standard that matters, it leaves us condemned. It doesn't, doesn't leave us confident. It leaves us crying out for mercy to God, not, not complacent in our prayers. And so you notice, don't you, that's why the Pharisee didn't make any requests of God in his prayer. He came to the banquet of God, but he was so full, he was so satisfied with his own performance that he didn't feel like he could, he could use anything that God had to offer. He had nothing to ask of God. But the tax collector's prayer is pure petition. He came uh, to God's bounty and he came ravenous. He came hungry. He came thirsty for righteousness. And he came knowing that he had none of it of his own. And so his only prayer is, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, we, we know that prayer, right? We're familiar with that prayer. Even if you haven't been to seminary, that's the Greek phrase that you know. Kyrie eleison, God, have mercy, Lord, have mercy. And mercy is a good word. It's a powerful word. It's there that, that can meet all of, all of our needs, no matter how, how varied they are. But it's really kind of a generic word, and that's not the word that he uses. In his prayer, he doesn't pray, Kiri eleison, God have mercy. He prays, Kiri helestati, God make atonement. That's what he says. God, provide a sacrifice for me. God, grant a go-between to cover my sin, to turn away your wrath. The verb in his prayer, what he wants from God, it shows up only one other place in the entire New Testament. It shows up in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. And here's what Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 tells us, speaking of Christ, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's the word he uses, to make propitiation. He's praying, O oh Lord, propitiate my sin, expiate your wrath expunge it, do away with it, put someone, something in between me and your wrath that's due to me for my sin. Oh Lord, give me a covering and atonement. Make propitiation. That's what he's praying. 
as a noun, it shows up uh, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. There is a, a very specific mercy that the tax collector is asking for. That the Lord would prepare for him a sacrificial substitute. Not that he would ignore his sin, not that he would just turn a blind eye to it, but that he would cover it. Isaac Watts, one of his hymns, Not all the blood of bulls and goats on Israel's altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ, but Christ, the heavenly Lamb of God, takes all our sins away. A sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. And if you have been given the grace, the the mercy of God to see your sin as God sees your sin, that's the same thing that you'll pray for. You'll pray for his mercy in the form of his heavenly lamb. Now, Jesus often tells his parables with a surprise ending. And this is, this is one of those stories. And so verse 14, Jesus reveals uh, the real spiritual comparison, but he reveals it from God's point of view. There are two men who came in. Uh, they're on the same footing. Jesus calls them two men, though, though outwardly they might be a part of, of different groups. One a Pharisee, one a tax collector. Two men enter. And, uh, and the Pharisee, who, who trusted in himself, entered the temple and he left with the same thing that he carried in. The tax collector, I'm sorry, the Pharisee carried in uh, unacknowledged, unatoned for pride. He carried self-conceit. The Pharisee entered the temple with his, his own standard of righteousness. Righteousness by comparison with others. And when he walked out, he was none the better despite all of his fine-sounding prayers. He actually received nothing from the Lord. Even though he thought that he was very good and had all that he needed, uh, and he didn't ask, and so he didn't receive. The tax collector, though, receives something different. He receives a righteousness that's actually worth something. Jesus says, I tell you, this man, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. And when Jesus says that he's justified, we ought to take him at his word. We ought to understand it in the fullest sense of the term. We ought to understand it in the Romans chapter 3 verse 24 sense of the term. Romans chapter 3 verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And so in this story that, that Jesus told, the tax collector left his home as a sinner and he returned home as a child of God. And it happened through the sacrificial system that was pointing forward to Christ, through the mercy seat there that was sprinkled with the blood of sacrifices once a year, every year on the Day of Atonement. And it pointed forward to the one who was going to make propitiation. And through that system, he believed God's promise and he received God's forgiveness. And he only of the two was declared righteous by God. And this passage is an, an invitation to humble ourselves as he humbled himself. It's an invitation to receive and, and to rest in a righteousness that comes by Christ's atoning sacrifice. 
But in that, we need to be careful. As maybe you've noticed what we've been doing together uh, this afternoon, we've been making spiritual comparisons. We've been looking at a man who is humble and a man who's full of pride. We've been uh, looking uh, at a man who who recognizes his need for mercy, and we've been looking at a man who, who does not recognize that need. And it's amazing how easy it is to turn that comparison into another means of self-justification. It's easy to take the prayer of the tax collector and turn it into a formula. And to think that if we just go through the same motions, and if we just do the same things and say the same words that, that he said, that we'll receive the same outcome. And if we do it, we, we can go through all the right deeds and then we can feel bad for all the poor saps who haven't gotten it together the way that we have. You could pray a version of that prayer, couldn't you? Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Hypocrites, will worshipers, legalists, certainly not like this Pharisee over here. I confess my sins twice a week. I feel bad for at least 10% of the errant thoughts that I shouldn't have, but I do have. It's scary how easily we can trust in the process. We can trust in our performance and never actually come to a knowledge of our need in God's sight. And the parable wasn't spoken to give us a formula for forgiveness. It's meant to show us how much we need the mercy of Christ's atonement. Not just for our bad deeds but for our self-satisfied good ones as well. You know, the lesson that the Pharisee failed to learn was that God's mercy remains out of reach for those who think they don't need it. But when you see your sin the way God does, he'll also teach you to cry out for mercy. Would you join me in prayer? O gracious Lord and God, we pray that you would have mercy on us, sinners all. We pray for your forgiveness, pray for your atonement, pray for the propitiation of our sins. O thank you, Lord, that though we are just like all others, self-righteous and sinful, yet we can come to you, and by your Holy Spirit you humble us to cry out for mercy. And through Christ, you promise and give it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.